Uh, we're in a study that we began last week. I want to thank Tony. Uh, did a great job on uh, kicking off this series on Colossians, telling us about who wrote it, the Apostle Paul, and why he was qualified to do so. Did a, a super job listening to him on Facebook live, and uh, it was really good. We missed being here, but we did see our granddaughter, and that's a big win. Uh, she's doing awesome. I also want to mention that yesterday we, had, we hosted a, a huge event. If you came by the church and you saw these cars, like, what's going on? Uh, we hosted a huge event called the Blameless Children, uh, which is an event that's put on uh, to uh, recognize the plight of a lot of innocent children uh, who are uh, parents are struggling with addiction. And uh, so it was great. We had this stage. This turned into like a mosh pit up here of worship. Uh, we had several of the uh, singers who came and just uh, praised the Lord. A lot of testimonies about how God had delivered them and was delivering them, was preserving them in addiction. And uh, so that was really cool. Uh, kind of neat to do that. A lot of uh, people who help uh, provide services to those who are struggling. So it was really cool. But I do want to remind you that we do host every Monday night. Uh, we host to Celebrate Recovery, which is just an opportunity for people who are dealing with some hurt, habit, habit or hang-up uh, that they're struggling with, that they'd like to break free from or need support, people around them. Uh, that's at Celebrate Recovery. Uh, it's on Monday nights at 6. There's a meal provided, and then there's also... Uh, a discussion, a conversation about one of the 12 steps of recovery, which are Bible-based, by the way. And then there's also a, a time of a small group and support groups that are broken up. So if you're looking for something like that or know someone that might help, uh, that might help someone, uh, that is free and it's available every Monday night, Celebrate Recovery. Um, today we're going to continue on the study. Uh, we're going to really break into chapter 1, several verses there this morning. But uh, we're going to talk about prayer. And uh, the more I think about prayer, every now and then I'm just struck with how powerful prayer is and how little advantage we take of it many times. Or maybe I'm basing it on myself. You guys may be prayer warriors, uh, but I, uh, I do have a specific time to pray every day. And I want to make prayer a, part, a big part of life. But um, we just don't use this as avenue of blessing and this power as much as we should. And I want to share with you just an example of the power of prayer. I think prayer does happen. I got a chance after the service to pray for, with a couple of people who are, had a request, so I always love to do that. Uh, but uh, several months ago, in fact, maybe over a year ago, uh, we were praying for uh, the son of one of our uh, elders, uh, Gary and uh, his wife Ruth, they're here, for Nathan. Now, Nathan grew up here, and he's one of our kids, but he lives in Washington State now, and for a few years has been pursuing a nursing degree, and uh, that's a pretty big deal. It's not an easy thing to get, and so he accomplished his coursework, but had the test to take. And was planning on taking that test, I believe it was in November or December, and we were praying for that, and then at the last moment, the bottom kind of fell out, and he wasn't able to take it, some things beyond his control. And so, very disappointed, not only not to get the test taken uh, for certification, but also because there was a job he really wanted that was being posted, and so he wasn't able to get the certification, wasn't able to apply for the job, very disappointed. But anyway, things coming around, and so we began to pray. Our elders prayed. We prayed on Saturday mornings on our time of prayer. And, uh, and others were praying for Nathan to get this test and then get a job. And so uh, he was uh, able to, within the last few weeks, take the test, passed it, and then discovered, lo and behold, that the job that he had wanted, that he had hope, was hoping for, had there had been a hiring freeze. He wasn't able to get that job. The job came open. Immediately he was uh, accepted and was hired for that job. 
Now that's um, quite a coincidence, don't you think? <laughs> uh, we know it's not coincidence. Uh, we know that God was all over that. And you know, all of us could probably talk about occasions that we've known where God has done things. God works miracles, and uh, we just need to recognize that in prayer. And so today we're going to be talking specifically about praying for one another and for ourselves, but, but really just talking about prayer. Have you ever had anybody ask you, will you pray for me? And I get that frequently, and I'm always honored to do that. I'm humbled, but honored as well. And uh, oftentimes I've found that if I don't pray immediately, that somehow it kind of falls off the radar. And my intention is to always pray and continue to pray, but until I get it written down, sometimes I, I have a hard time remembering. So I want to pray right now, and I like to pray in the moment, and then I'm more likely I've discovered to remember to pray on down the road. So uh, I think that's a good practice, and most people probably agree that's true with them as well. But you know what? Sometimes I'm not sure exactly what to pray about for someone. I mean, there's the immediate need, the crisis of the moment, the thing that would drive us to say, hey, will you pray for me? Obviously, we have the, all of us have those times in our life, but maybe that's just a symptom or just a small part of what's going on in their real world. And what do they really need to be prayed for? Do we always pray specifically for what someone requests us to pray for, even though we may know as an objective outsider that it's not the best thing for them, or that it may even contrary, be contrary to God's Word, the Scripture. We don't really want to do that, I don't think. When we pray for other people, it's called intercessory prayer, that we are interceding to the Father for another person. And I don't want you to ever think that's a small thing. In my mind, when someone says, will you go to the Father, will you talk to God on my behalf, that is huge. And that's not a burden. It is an honor, a privilege to be able to pray for someone but I will also say that intercessory prayer is part of being a disciple who is making other disciples. One of the ways that we pour into other people is that we pray for them, whatever may be going on in their world. And so if we're interceding to God on behalf of others, it's important that we not only take that seriously, but also that we know what we're praying for. And then we find a biblical model for that as well. And so today we're going to be talking about prayer, and we're going to learn from an expert. And that expert is the Apostle Paul who had, I believe, an incredible prayer life due to everything that he went through and everything he was able to accomplish for God. You know, in the Bible, we see people who are seemingly superhuman in what they're able to do, almost bigger than life, and the Apostle Paul is one of those people. Last week, uh, Tony talked about Paul and uh, his uh, accreditation or his uh, certification as someone who was not only inspired by God but had a, a true passion for sharing the Word of God. And that he, in fact, wrote uh, 14 of the... Uh, letters or books in the New Testament to churches or individuals to encourage them to live a faithful Christian life. So that's almost half the New Testament that this man wrote. So when he speaks, we need to listen to what Paul has to say. And whatever he does, we need to model uh, our lives after that in any way that we can. In fact, Paul says, be an imitator of me as I am an imitator of Christ. And that's a huge statement. So in this area of prayer, uh, we have a great model to look at. So Colossians, this book of Colossians is, uh, is written to the church of Colossae. I think Tony mentioned that. That was a small town in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. So we kind of locate where that's at. And the church there had been started by a man named Epaphras, who seemingly was both a friend and maybe a co-worker, a partner of Paul in starting new churches. And uh, he came, he had started the church, he came and he told Paul about it. Now what's also interesting is that there's no record in the Bible of Paul ever having been there or going there. 
You know, in the, New, in the book of Acts, when we read uh, the latter part of that book about the missionary journeys of Paul, we read about a lot of cities. In fact, you've probably got a page in your Bible somewhere in the back of this map of the journeys of Paul there, and you'll see these little cities. He stopped it all along the way, some of them two or three times, and kind of traced his journeys. But I don't believe that the, the town Colossae is mentioned as far as Paul stopping there. Now, he may have, but even if he didn't, that might even be more power and more uh, evidence that we ought to pray for one another because if Paul was praying for people he didn't even know, doesn't it make more sense for us to pray for people that we do know, right? And so he wrote this letter to them in, in response to Epaphras' request. And he wrote it probably sometime around 61 or 62 AD while he was in prison. Now, if you kind of trace the life of Paul, you know that Paul had a heart for the Gentile people, which is a great thing for us. Probably most of us are Gentiles uh, by birth. So he had a heart for Gentile people, but he was accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which was a serious accusation. It all kind of escalated into a situation where Paul was arrested and then traveled to Rome where he stayed for a couple years and then we believe was probably set free. But during that time he was there, he was given time to write uh, and, and pray, obviously, for people, but also to witness about Jesus. So he used that time wisely, and, and during the time, we know that he prayed for all the churches that he had been to and the ones that re were, re requests were made to him. So that's kind of where we find ourselves with this book. And while he may not have known them personally, he definitely had a heart for the city to, uh, to write them a specific letter that we call the book of Colossians there. And, um, and the other reason he prayed for them, I believe, Epaphras probably came and said, Paul, this is a young church, and they really need your prayers because they have a great faith to God, but they're under pressure to conform to the world around them and to abandon Jesus. And when I think of that, I think that's pretty much where we are today. We are in a pressures, pressured situation where we have a smorgasbord or a buffet, however you want to think of that, of religious uh, philosophies, of religions, that can pull us away from Christ, who is the real thing. Amen. And so we need to be anchored in Christ. And Amen. one thing you're going to see in the study of this book is that Paul always comes back to Jesus. And that's why we're calling this study the, uh, a big Jesus, because it's really about him. It's not about Paul. It's not about a church in Colossians. Uh, Colossae, it is really about Jesus. And so Paul's going to pull us back and focus us on Jesus uh, in every message that we have throughout this, all right? So let's stop talking about the book. Let's jump in and read it. All right, Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing excuse me, throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, in a few moments, Paul's going to get really specific about what to pray for one another, what to pray for ourselves. But first of all, he's going to focus on three qualities here that kind of jumped out at me anyway that the believers possessed. They are faith, hope, and love. Maybe you picked up on them in, in the reading there. Faith, hope, and love. And Paul liked those uh, things pretty well. In fact, he talks more about them in a letter he wrote, another letter to the, the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 13, in what we call the love chapter. 
And he says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, right? We probably know that. So he singles these three characteristics out as very distinct and very important. And so we're going to take a few moments and see how Paul directs these three divine qualities. And I think that in itself is kind of interesting. First of all is faith. And Paul directs that internally. You must have an internal faith. In fact, a, a deep faith in Christ alone is a prerequisite for real Christianity. You know, I, I think a lot of us probably have been raised in Christians' homes. I was one of those guys, grew up in a Christian family, very strong Christian parents and model, in church at least three times a week, sometimes more, two-week revivals in the summer. That was a long time ago. But, you know, I had an inherited faith from my parents, and they just passed this along to me, and I was very fortunate in that. But when I was in college, I had to wrestle with something and that is, is this just my parents' faith? Am I just a Christian because they were? Or have I really uh, uh, taken ownership of my faith? And, and I believe that growing up in church actually can have a danger if we assume that because we grew up in the church and then we're just believers because our parents are and we never wrestle with our own sin and our own brokenness and we never take personal ownership of our faith, that's a problem. Amen. And so Paul says you must have a faith internally only in Christ alone for life, for salvation, for eternity. And our faith must be anchored only in Jesus. And see, that was a problem that they had in that day. There were other options for them. And today in our world, other options exist as well. And in fact, the lines are oftentimes blended in our world. And we have to be very careful about that. And that's why I want to share with you a very specific one to show an example of of where our world is going and, and the dangers and the temptation that's outside that seem very subtle and that is in what has been called the progressive Christian movement Now, the problem I have with that is it's I don't believe it's progressive uh, for one thing and I don't think it's Christian as well in fact in my opinion it's the heresy of our day heresy is departing from the truth of God's word of Christianity and I'm going to read some things to you now I've shared this before but I, I this is on my heart because I see our world absorbing this and our culture moving this way and I think sometimes we just have to call these things out for what they are so I want to share this this idea of progressiveness uh, that that we hear in Christian circles and and explain what it is and, and I'm gonna say up front initially it doesn't sound all that bad because some of these things are obviously very positive that we all would want but, but here's some of the tenets of progressive Christianity striving for peace and justice among all people kind of hard to argue with that right Striving to protect and restore the integrity of our earth. Certainly we need to protect our earth. You know, the Lord's going to destroy it, create a new heaven, a new earth one day, but we shouldn't be the ones destroying it ourselves. Commit to a path of lifelong learning, compassion, and selfless love. It's hard to argue with that kind of pursuit, right? Know that the way we behave one another in the is the fullest expression of what we believe. Ah, that could be a little bit. Jesus said, uh, love the, your neighbors yourself. But he said, first of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. So that's where our primary focus needs to be about God. And then it run, kind of runs around us. Next, seek community that is inclusive of all people, including but not limited to conventional Christians and questioning skeptics, believer and agnostics, women and men, those of all sexual orientations and gender identities, those of all classes and abilities. So I think... You kind of see where, what the language is we're hearing more and more in our world today. But the focus is not that we uh, exclude people, but instead we understand that there is a truth that we long for, we hold to. 
But then the, the further we go in this, the more difficult, and in my mind, the further from Christianity it becomes. We find grace in the search for understanding and believe there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. Is there more value in questioning than finding truth? I don't think so. I think truth is the quest, right? Absolutes are what we, what we stand upon. Believe that following the path and the teachings of Jesus can lead, key word, can lead to an awareness and experience of the sacred and the oneness and unity of all life. Again, this seems to me to be a concept of God, but kind of distorted and kind of distracting there. But then the last one, this blows me away, affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide but one of many ways to experience the sacredness and oneness of life and that we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom in our spiritual journey. And let me tell you, this is not Christianity at all. This is not Christianity. This is an old religion that's been around a long, long time. And you can relabel it and you can call it what you want, but this is not Christianity. This is heresy to, to what Christianity is because Christianity is faith in Jesus alone, the Christ, the only Son of God, and the only way to the Father. And that's what Christianity is, and that's what we're talking about here, and that's the faith that must be internal inside of us, uh, internal in us. The second thing he talks about is hope, and hope is to be eternal. It surpasses our current time. Paul said this is a hope that is laid up in heaven. See, guys, we're not living for the moment. We're not living for the future on earth. We're living for our future in heaven. And our hope is not in this world or the things of this world. We're only passing through. In fact, the Bible says that we're aliens here. And if it seems like a strange land, there's a good reason for that because it is a strange land. And to be honest to me, it's getting a little bit stranger every day uh, to what we hold to be truth, right? We live in a, in a strange place. And we're called to live differently in this world. We're called to live with our eyes, our sight on eternity beyond this world, and that will impact our decisions, our priorities, what we do with our time, with our money, with our energy, everything, because our hope is eternal. And then thirdly, he talks about love, and that is to be external, to be external, our faith internal, our love external. If my faith is in Christ and my hope is in eternity, then I'm going to love uh, I'm going to have love in me that overflows and spills out to everybody that I come in contact with. In verse 4, Paul says, we have a love for all the saints. You know, for a few weeks, uh, just a month or so ago, uh, we began a series called Love My Church. And we went through that and we talked about how we love our church, how we can do that through service and fellowship and connection and, and, and giving. And we had some incredible uh, experiences in that whole, in that whole study there. But Jesus said, this will be proof that you are my followers if you love one another. And then if you love the world, even beyond that. And so in verse 8, Paul says we need to love in the Spirit. Love in the Spirit. So he identifies these three qualities of real Christianity. Faith in Christ, hope for eternity, and love for people. And I think this is what Epaphras came and told Paul about the church in Colossae. He said, you know, we have a great church there. It, the, the Spirit is great. But please pray for us. Pray for us. Because that sort of faith is fragile, isn't it? And I can identify with that because I see us in a very similar way. Journey Church is a great church. We have some awesome people. You guys are incredible. I love this church. We have a precious unity in our church. I think we have welcoming, open arms to our community out there, a strong faith in Jesus. We have hope in eternity, and we have love for people. But we feel the pressures of the world, don't we? 
We feel it as individuals and we feel it as a church. And we need, we long for prayer. We ought to love and pray for one another so we can remain strong. In fact, I think the best gift that you can give to someone is prayer. I really do. Never be reluctant or shy to ask for prayer because that is a blessing that we can always give to one another. And intercessory prayer, I think, reflects the character of God, his, his love and his mercy. And also it helps us think beyond ourselves and grow in compassion for others. I would encourage you to pray for one another. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your kids. Pray for the person that you don't care for. It's hard to hate somebody that you're praying for. You know, maybe that's the way you, you deal with your, your, your hard feelings towards someone. But pray for one another. That is a blessing that you can give them. And in fact, the Bible says it's also a command. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kind of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So it's pretty clear that it's not just an option or a good thing to do, that it is a command for believers to pray for one another. And so we're going to kind of move down in the next section of Scripture in Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 9, where we see what we should be praying for for other people, how we can bless them with our prayers. So let's jump into that, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, let me just say this. I think sometimes the book of Colossians, Paul's writings are a little bit complex in the way their the sentence structure is, to be honest. You know, the Gospels, pretty simple, and we can read through them, but Paul's a little more complex in his writing. In fact, we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks uh, how, how complicated he can be and how he writes things. Um, but, but for right now, let's kind of break this down. I just want to give you three things that Paul says we should pray for one another. The first thing is we ought to pray for spiritual wisdom. Amen. Paul says, I, I'm asking for wisdom and knowledge and understanding for the church in Colossians and for us as today. Now, I don't know about you, but I always kind of struggle a little bit with the definition between wisdom and knowledge because the lines get kind of blurred for me. So I thought, you know what, let's go to dictionary, find out what it really means. Wisdom is the ability to discern or judge what is true, right, or lasting. The ability to discern. Knowledge is information gained through experience, reasoning, or acquaintance. So here's the thing, they're different because knowledge can exist without wisdom. Do you know people who have a lot of knowledge, but not a lot of wisdom? Yeah. You know, there are people who, who have a lot of book sense, but not a lot of common sense. But there's also a lot of people who have a lot of wisdom. They know a lot of things about the world, but they've not discovered true wisdom that comes from knowing God, right? Because they're, they're lost out there. Their learning has made them mad, right? But you cannot be wise without having some knowledge, too. And so that's what Paul's saying. I want you to know about Jesus, and then I want you to be wise in how you use what you know. And we ought to pray for wisdom, right? I don't think I pray enough for wisdom. Just thinking about my prayer life, maybe we ought to seek wisdom more. And we can also pray for wisdom for other people. Now, how do we gain wisdom for ourselves? Well, 
uh, we can ask the question, how do people that I think are wise, how are they advising me? You know, are they advising me one way? If, if they're on the outside being objective, advising me, then maybe I should listen to them. How is the Spirit leading me? Paul makes a lot here about being led by the Spirit in our prayers. So how is the Spirit leading me to think and act? What does God specifically say about it? If God says something very clearly in his word, the answer is pretty clear. We just need to be, to, to be obedient. Is there an example in the Bible that we can learn from? There, there are a lot of examples. The Bible says that it was written to teach us so that we can learn. Even in the Old Testament, we found all sorts of experiences and in the dilemmas that people were in that they used wisdom to, to get out of it. So we learn from the examples in the Bible. And then also we ask, how does this affect others? Because our decisions are always going to impact other people around us, Amen. even people who may be on the periphery of our, of our lives, all right? So all those things are wrapped up in seeking wisdom and in praying for wisdom for others. So if someone prays for you, or someone asks you to pray for them, then, then maybe you ought to go beyond just that immediate request and start praying not only for that, but for all their life, for all their life. Here are some areas you can pray for. Uh, and, and this is kind of what, what it gives in, in a family. You would pray for wisdom to put Jesus at the center of their family. I mean, doesn't every family need Jesus there? And wouldn't every family be healthier and more functional if Jesus was at the center? You pray for the husband to lead and love his family like Christ leads and loves the church, which is an example that, that he gives. Pray for their finances. How often we pray for people uh, in their finances, unless that's a, they're in a big hole. But pray that they would be good, good stewards of what they've been given. Pray that they would be generous uh, so that God would freely bless them because we know the connection between generosity and, and experiencing the blessings of God in our finances. And then pray for their friendships, that they would invest in good friendships and they would sever unhealthy ones. How many people do we know that are struggling because they got a really unhealthy relationship out there and they just need to use some wisdom in deciding what to do with that and how to respond? Pray for understanding and wisdom to use the knowledge that they have been given. There's some simple ways that we can can pray in spiritual wisdom for other people. But we ought to also pray, secondly, Paul says, for their spiritual walk. In verse 16 he says, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So he talks about pleasing God, bearing fruit, and growing. Uh, our, our spiritual walk is basically our life. So if somebody says, how's your walk? It's like, how's your spiritual life going here? A person's spiritual life involves three things. It involves their conduct. This is how they act. It involves their character, who they are uh, in the dark. And it involves their conversation, what they say. Because the mouth really does reflect what the mind thinks, right? We don't usually say things before we think them. So um, we don't always think through them. <laughs> we, but, uh, but it all originates in our mind, right? And so we need, to, we need to protect, we need to pray for our conduct, our conversation, and our character. In fact, our conduct, conversation, and character will change as we become convicted, leading to a more consistent life with that of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of C's in that, but that's kind of what it is. Those three areas of life are important, so we ought to pray for our own conduct, conversation, and character, and pray for that of others as well, that their walk with Christ would be growing stronger. And then thirdly, Paul says, I'm praying for your weaknesses. In verse 11, he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that you may have great endurance and patience. So we ought to pray for one another's 
weaknesses, what they're struggling with. And, and this is usually the most common thing that prompts someone to ask you to pray for them, whatever they're dealing with at the moment. For example, their physical weaknesses. And this is many times where a lot of our prayers center and stop, but they should never stop with just the physical things. Obviously, they're the most pressing things, things like health, maybe finances, a job, certain things like that. You know, that's why people, we have, that's what people put on the prayer list a lot of times, health issues, just the physical things. And we ought to pray for them. Certainly, if someone is ill or has a loved one that's ill or is hurting or grieving, we need to pray for them in that respect. But, but go beyond that. Uh, we all also pray for emotional weaknesses that are things like grief or anger or depression or maybe a, a broken relationship with a child that's, that's a rebellion or a, a spouse or some other fractured friendship that maybe that person has. Those are issues as well that are beyond the physical, they're emotional, but then also for spiritual weaknesses, Amen. spiritual issues, things like spiritual warfare. Do we often think about how some people are being attacked, it seems like, just over and over again? I mean, it just seems like things are just, they're just being pounded by issues. Their life is just being troubled uh, on a consistent basis. Those are many times the way that Satan has tried to break us down and attack us and destroy our faith. Pray for, for warfare, for, for uh, spiritual oppression uh, of the dark forces of evil the Bible talks about, for temptation. That, that this person might not be tempted beyond what they can handle. Pray for apathy. Do you ever pray for someone that is being very apath apathetic in their relationship with the Lord? I have to admit, sometimes I, I don't think about praying from that angle, but those are all great things that we need to pray for the weaknesses of others. And Paul says, in these things, I want to pray for endurance and patience. And we all know what patience is. We don't always have it, but we know what it is, and that is just waiting on God. It's just trusting that God's going to do something in his time. But what is endurance? It's a little bit harder to, to frame that, isn't it? It comes from two Greek words. One of them is remain, and the other is under. So endurance is the, the ability to remain strong under pressure. So patience and endurance together um, is what God calls us to deal with, to, to have whenever we're going through the hard times in life, that we can remain strong and just wait on God. And then Paul kind of wraps this up by using the gospel of Jesus Christ, by, by centering it there. And again, every time we're going to come back to Jesus in this book, it's why big Jesus is displayed here. It says, for he, Christ, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now I want you to think a moment about redemption and about how we could pray toward that end for other people. Because all these other things that we've talked about, even though they're very important, they're all somewhat secondary, aren't they? I mean, we can pray for somebody's health and they can be the picture of health. We can pray for all the relationships that they're great, that they have a healthy family, they got a great job, their money's going great. We can pray all of those things and, and maybe God answered those prayers or maybe they're blessed in some way. But if that person doesn't know Jesus, it's all for naught. Amen. So it really is. I mean, it's not, it's not kind of minimize that. We all want all those things in our life. But if they don't know Christ, you know, they can live a perfect life and leave this life and go into eternity without Christ. And that's not gain. That's not what we're longing for. So our first prayer for anyone ought to be that they come to know Jesus, that he has rescued them from darkness. He had brought them into 
the light of Christ, light of hope, because he brings redemption and he brings forgiveness. You know, that word redemption is a, kind of an interesting word, isn't it? We don't use that word hardly at all in our, in our normal vocabulary. I don't anyway. I just don't, don't use that. But it, it's been described many ways down through time. What is the picture of redemption like? In fact, the Bible talks about it a lot. About 150 times in the Bible the word redemption is used. But, but what does it really mean? And someone said the best depiction of redemption comes from the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. And you're probably familiar with what's going on there with the people of God, the Israelites. They are in Egypt, and they've been there for several hundred years. They were invited in as guests, but then they became enslaved. And, uh, and they outgrew the people, the host of the land, because God was blessing them. And suddenly they become enslaved by the Egyptian people, and the Egyptians will not let up. And they lived through this for some time when, uh, and under the cruel master of Pharaoh when God decides to deliver them. And God sends a mediator. You probably know his name was Moses. And he's a real underdog. I mean, he's in his 80s. He's not a good speaker. He's not confident of himself. But he goes before Pharaoh, this huge on his throne and all the power surrounding him. And he says, let the people go. And immediately Pharaoh says no. I mean, that's his first response. He has no intention of letting his slaves go. But we know that Moses, you know, prayed and God was leading him through this. And after a series of 10 devastating plagues, the land of Egypt was destroyed. And then the last plague came, and that was the death angel. If you remember the story, God told the Israelites that they should take a lamb and kill that lamb and use the blood to put on their doorpost. And every door, every house that was covered or anointed with the blood of the lamb would be passed over by the death angel. And that blood of the, the lamb basically bought them or redeemed them uh, life. And they would not suffer loss. And so from that came what the Jewish people, many of them still celebrate as Passover, to celebrate the lamb that substituted for them and allowed death to pass over them. Now, the, the, how that plays into our discussion today is that Jesus is a, a type of that Amen. redeemer, or that is a type of Jesus Amen. pulled forward. The Bible says that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. That we are all, like the Israelites, enslaved but we are slaves to sin. We are oppressed, we are controlled, we are enslaved. But when Jesus came and he died upon the cross willingly, his blood was shed to take away our sin, to set us free and to deliver us so that death would pass over us. And through that, we are redeemed. And that's what Paul's talking about, the redemption that we experience through Jesus Christ. And that's such an incredible thing for us to, to celebrate. It really is. And this morning, if you've not experienced the kind of redemption that Christ can bring, that freedom from the guilt of sin and the punishment of sin and the hope of eternal life, then I would love to have a conversation with you about that. I would love to just sit down and talk about what it takes. It, it's so simple. It's not complicated, even though it may use a word we don't use a lot. It, it's very simple. Amen. And it's an offering that he gives to every one of us. And I'd love to do that. I'm going to be down front. I'd love to come... Uh, talk to you about that or pray with you, whatever your issue may be this morning. But right now we're going to transition into what I think is in many ways the Christian's Passover because it's a reminder to us of what Christ did for us. It's, it's a way for us to celebrate like the Jewish people did the love and the mercy of Christ and the substitution of a lamb so that we could live. 
Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, voluntarily laid his life down to die for us. And in this time of communion, it's a time for us to seriously consider that and be grateful for that. And to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done for us. Just like the Israelites thanked God for their, their redemption. And so it's our tradition that every week we come together and we offer this to all those who are believers. If you're not a member here and you're a believer in Christ, we invite you to come to the table and to experience this time with the Father. It's a very serious time, obviously. Time we should never take for granted and we should never minimize. The central part of our time with the Lord. We invite you to come and our tradition is that we just walk forward to the tables and circle back to, to your seats. And if you're unable to get up or you prefer not to come forward, just raise your hand. One of our deacons will step forward and, and provide that for you. So would you pray with me now as we go to our time of communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Father, we are so honored and so blessed and humbled to be the recipients of of your redemption. God, we can, as the word says, we can, as believers, we are redeemed and we can say so, we can proclaim that and we want to do that. And Lord, one of the ways that we do so is by taking in this communion, by remembering, by celebrating, by being grateful, and by examining our own lives. My Father, we thank you for the bread and the cup that are given for us. And we ask, Lord, that as we take them into our bodies, that Father, it would be a way of us connecting with you, your death on the cross and your burial, remembering and celebrating the victory as well. So Lord, thank you for your redemption. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this time we can share. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.